Hi everyone, it's Michael. This episode is something a wee bit different, um, and I hope you'll indulge me a wee bit. It's my mum's birthday this week, and it's a big birthday. I won't tell you what one, because that would be rude, but I asked her if she could have an episode on absolutely anything. What would it be? And she picked this. Happy birthday, mum. It is 1811. You're trudging in a line of your dishevelled comrades from a town you can barely pronounce to another town you can barely pronounce, where people speak not only a language that is utterly foreign to you, but you reckon that if you did speak the language, you wouldn't understand them anyway. You had been fighting for the Emperor, someone who had given you your national pride back after the bloodbath of the French Revolution. Napoleon Bonaparte had given you and your people a purpose and something to fight for. But to fight in battle is to risk death. To fight in battle is to risk capture. You'd been held for what felt like years aboard one of the many floating prisons around the south coast of England, but suddenly you're on the move. Thousands of your compatriots are being moved north of the border, after the British Admiralty suddenly realised that housing thousands of French prisoners directly in the path of a potential French invasion force might just be a bad idea. There was a suggestion that they were planning a mass breakout and an audacious attempt to seize the naval arsenal in Portsmouth in order to pave the way for Napoleon to make a last-ditch effort to invade Britain. So, you know, out of sight, out of mind. This is Scotland, a podcast about history and where we made it. I'm Michael Park. The Transport Board, responsible for the movement of prisoners, began shifting them to sites in Pennycook and Perth to a custom-built facility which would become Perth Prison. But first you're going to have to make a quick overnight pit stop. High above you, lost in the inky black of the night lies a fortress. Sitting on a rocky outcropping, above a bustling city, where people have come out in the streets to see the convoy of carts move you and your comrades to the prison. The sight of Edinburgh Castle which rose above us and crowned the central hill frightened us. We knew that many Frenchmen had already been shut up there, and we were fearful that we would also be imprisoned within those thick black walls. Edinburgh Castle has only recently been converted to a permanent prison, after one of Pennycook's two depots started hemorrhaging prisoners, who found escape from the temporary facility at Esk Mills all too easy. The complex was closed down, and nearly 500 prisoners were moved to the castle permanently. You don't know where you're going. Unsurprisingly, the soldiers guarding you aren't too keen to tell you, not least because they don't speak French, and they probably don't know. The castle isn't the impregnable bastion it once was. In fact, only weeks before, 50 prisoners of war cut a hole into the parapet wall and used a rope fashioned from clothes to scale down the side of the castle and the foreboding rock that it sits upon. One fell to his death, breaking his spine on the rocks on the way to the ground. Four were rounded up immediately, while most of the others managed to get out of Edinburgh. Some made it as far as Falkirk before being caught. The last four could taste salt air as they boarded a ship bound for America. Unfortunately, the ship was detained by the authorities, 
and the unfortunate French sailors were taken back into custody. Either French prisoners were very good at escaping, or the British guards were complacent. There was another escape at the end of April, and then one on the 14th of July, Bastille Day, which ended the castle's time as a permanent prison. The head of the transport board was replaced for overseeing so many escapes, but, as is tradition for failed heads of government institutions, he was later reinstated. If you enjoy listening to Scotland, then one of the most helpful things you can do for us is to leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I do realise, though, that a lot of apps don't let you leave ratings and reviews, which is kind of awkward. But if you would be up for like telling your friends about us on social media or the next time you're allowed to get in a lift, that would be awesome. We really appreciate all the support that we get from you guys and anything you can do to help spread the word is amazing. And of course, if you want extra stuff, early access to episodes, merchandise, all that kind of fun stuff, you can enjoy our Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Scotland History Podcast. Thanks very much. Enjoy the rest of the show. With you being a mere pleb in the French Navy, a lowly sailor, your fate is much different to the officers who have been brought north of the border. In so-called parole towns like Peeble, Selkirk and Kelso, officers are given pretty much free reign. Housed with local families, they are allowed to live almost as free men, with a local agent assigned to make sure that they didn't cause any trouble. These officers weren't expected to work, and were being paid half a guinea a day by the British Crown, not to mention the fact that many of them were already independently wealthy. Little French enclaves began to spring up, with some even opening small theatres and cafes designed exclusively to cater to the tastes of the men who were guests of the British authorities. Since they were paying for their stay, and in some cases investing large sums into the local economy, most of the people of the towns were pretty pleased with the arrangement. Not everyone was so buzzing, though. James Chambers owned a drapery business in Peebles and was forced out of business after a group of French officers bought cloth from him and refused to pay. His sons Robert and William ended up having to go into the publishing industry instead of following in their father's footsteps. They went on to publish the Chambers Etymological Dictionary, which you can still find on shelves today. All that being said, this arrangement worked out very well and many French officers settled into life in these wee towns. Some even stayed long after the war, integrating into local life and having families. When Napoleon was finally defeated in 1815, there was a brief rumour that the French Emperor would be brought to Edinburgh Castle, but in the end, he was exiled to St Helena, an island more than 1,000 miles off the west coast of Angola, somewhere he could never cause a problem again. Out of sight, out of mind. The French Emperor, who had inspired so many to his side time and again when things seemed too bleak to fathom, died in a draughty, damp, dilapidated house on a little British-held island on the 5th of May, 1821. Most of his men had long since returned home from their exile. Some chose to stay in Scotland and make their lives here, and many had died in captivity. Napoleon himself had requested that he be buried on the banks of the Seine. 
the British governor had him buried on St Helena. It would be 19 years until his imperial and royal majesty Napoleon I, by the grace of God and the constitution of the Republic, Emperor of the French, King of Italy, Protector of the Confederation of the Rhine, Mediator of the Swiss Confederation, and Co-Prince of Andorra, would get to go home. The restored monarch King Louis-Philippe requested that his remains be returned to France, and the Emperor was exhumed on St Helena and examined. They say that the lead coffin in which he had been interred had allowed the Emperor's body to remain almost perfectly preserved. They speculate that if you were to exhume his remains from the incredible sarcophagus which stands under the magnificent dome of Les Invalides today, that the body of France's first emperor would still be perfectly preserved. At least that's what they say. The giant coffin in the middle of Les Invalides, surrounded by France's greatest military minds, may well be a fitting memorial to Napoleon, but there's a more humble monument which stands in Valley Field near Pennycook. Paid for by the owner of the Valley Field Mill, which had been one of the depots for the French prisoners, it marks the approximate location of the remains of 309 French POWs who lost their lives between 1811 and 1814. Its inscription reads that the monument was erected by certain inhabitants of this parish, desiring to remember that all men are brethren. You've been listening to Scotland. It was written and produced by me, Michael Park, and is a production of Be Quiet Media. This episode draws on information compiled by Dr Ian McDougall, whose book, All Men Are Brethren, is an in-depth account of Napoleonic prisoners of war held in Scotland. Dr McDougall sadly passed away in April of this year, aged 86. Additional voices in this episode were by Chris Moriarty. The music for every episode of Scotland is by the human drumline Mitch Bain. You can find out more about his work by heading over to mitchbain.bequiet.media. Jamie Mowat does stunning illustrations for us, which you can see in our episode art. You can also see more of her work and buy prints at tidlin, that's T-I-D-L-I-N dot com. Scotland is supported by Chris Lingwood and listeners like you on Patreon. Get involved at patreon.com forward slash Scotland History Podcast. You can find out more about the show on our website, thisisscotland.co, and on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching Scotland, a Scottish History Podcast. Thanks for listening. Look out for each other. Wear a mask. We'll see you next time.